How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. Welcome to Climate One, a conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. To understand any of them, you have to understand them all. I'm Greg Dalton, and today we're talking with U.S. Secretary of the Navy Ray Mabus about powering America's economy and military. The oil boom in North Dakota and Texas is projected to make the United States the world's largest petroleum producer next year. The notion that we would extract more oil than Saudi Arabia would have been unthinkable just a few years ago. While the country is awash in newly available oil, burning that oil is disrupting the Earth's climate and driving weird weather. If the world doesn't reduce carbon pollution soon, scientists say we can expect more severe droughts, floods, and economic disruption. Over the next hour, we'll discuss what the U.S. Navy is doing to balance the country's needs for energy and security, while also confronting climate reality. Along the way, we will include questions from our live audience here at the Commonwealth Club of California. Ray Mabus was governor of Mississippi for four years and U.S. ambassador to Saudi Arabia under President Clinton. President Obama appointed him U.S. Secretary of the Navy in 2009. Please welcome Secretary Mabus to the Commonwealth Club. <laughs> Secretary Mabus, welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here, Greg. I'd like to start in 2012. There was a demonstration of something that's called the Great Green Fleet. So tell us what that was and why you're doing it. The Great Green Fleet is a carrier strike group that was involved in the Rim of the Pacific exercise, which is the biggest naval exercise in the world every two years. And it was a nuclear-powered aircraft carrier, and it's screening ships, a cruiser, several destroyers, um, a misnamed oiler, um, every surface ship was steaming on a mixture of marine diesel and biofuel. Uh, every type of aircraft that took off from the carrier uh, was flying on a mixture of aviation, a 50-50 mixture of aviation, gasoline, and biofuel. We did it to demonstrate that we can reach both a float and a shore. The Navy's goal that we have set that by no later than 2020, at least half of all Navy energy, both on our ships at sea, our aircraft in the air, uh, and our bases, will come from non-fossil fuel sources. Uh, and it was the big news about it was there was no news. Uh, we, we bought the biofuel, uh, put it in the normal supply chain. It got to as I said, a misnamed oiler was filled with biofuel. Um, we refueled in the air, we refueled at sea, and the planes didn't notice a difference, the, air, the ships didn't notice a difference. Uh, there was no, no difference in that and their normal, their normal exercises, their normal steaming. And so it shows it works, and we're going to deploy the Great Green Fleet for seven or eight months uh, in 2016. Did you actually fly in one of those jets <laughs> flying on biofuel? I flew in a helicopter flying on biofuels, and uh, I signed an agreement with the Australian Navy uh, on the Nimitz, on the carrier. Uh, we're trading information with Australia and certification information on our planes and our ships, and the vice chief of the Australian Navy signed it, and one of the reporters said, are you committed to this program? How committed are you? And he said, I'm about to get on that helicopter. They just got refueled with biofuels. I'm pretty committed to, uh, to this whole thing. I actually heard there's actually a 1% performance increase, that biofuel is actually better than the old stuff. It, it burns a little cleaner, and so there's a little more power, and it doesn't gunk up your engine quite as much. In September of 2013, a couple of uh, analysts at the Heritage Foundation wrote a piece called Biofuel Blunder, and they questioned uh, the Great Green Fleet, saying that biofuels are being purchased by the Navy for $26 a gallon compared to $4 a gallon for diesel. They said diesel will be plentiful, partly because of fracking. And uh, so how would you address concerns about the costs and critics of the Great Green Fleet? I would address it this way. 
yeah, we paid $26 a gallon for the biofuels for the Great Green Fleet. That was because we bought a very small amount for a demonstration project. Uh, now, the very first biofuels we bought uh, to test an aircraft in 2009-2010 cost 10 times that um, because there just wasn't a market, and you, you were buying sort of experimental amounts. Uh, we have, under a, a law called the Defense Production Act, um, which says that if you need something for defense you can, <clears throat> that you, that's not produced in scale, you can invest in it. And so we have um, four companies now, four biofuel companies, all using different technology, under contract to, beginning in 2016, produce 170 million gallons of biofuel a year at uh, far less than $4 a gallon. Uh, and it's going to be very competitive with, um, <clears throat> with fossil fuels. In fact, we're not going to do it unless it is competitive with fossil fuels. But what we do is we bring a market. Um, the Department of Defense is the biggest user of fossil fuels in the world. Uh, the U.S. Navy uh, is, is about a third of that. So we burn uh, in the Navy and Marine Corps about uh, 1% of all fossil fuels burned in the United States every year. We can bring a market. We can make it uh, economical. We can bring the scale to this. And we're doing it for one reason. We're doing it to be better warfighters. We're doing it for national security reasons. And I'm, I'm glad the U.S. is more is producing more and becoming more uh, efficient at, at getting some of, the, some of the energy that we have. What it doesn't do for us, though, uh, number one, we can't use natural gas at, at sea because you know, we've got the engines in the aircraft and the ships that we're going to have. I mean, we've got most of the fleet that we're going to have for, in 2020. We've got most of the aircraft we're going to have in 2020, and they burn um, aviation, gasoline, or marine diesel. Uh, but number two is oil is the ultimate global commodity. And the price goes up and down based on completely extraneous factors. Uh, when Syria happened, Syria's not a big producer of oil and gas. When the unrest started in Syria... Uh, price of oil went up almost ten dollars a barrel. For every dollar, the uh, price of oil goes up. It costs the U.S. Navy an additional thirty million dollars a year. <clears throat> In FY11 and FY12, we had an extra two billion dollars in fuel bills, unbudgeted, because of the volatility of the price of oil. And we have got to, to erase that volatility. We've got to do it with a homegrown source. We're not just doing it with biofuels. Uh, biofuels is, is one part of the effort. We're doing it with solar. We're doing it with wind. We're doing it with geothermal. We're doing it with hydrothermal. We're doing it in any, any way that we can to take us out of this, uh, these price spikes that are uh, hindering our ability because even in the Pentagon, $2 billion is a lot of money. Um, it, um, and the Pentagon, writ large, over that same two-year period, had a $5 billion uh, unbudgeted fuel bill uh, because the price of oil went up quicker than anybody had anticipated. The only place I have to go get that money is exercise, operations, maintenance, so we fly less, we steam less, we train less. Or if the bill gets too big, you have to go after platforms. You buy fewer ships, you buy fewer aircraft. I don't think either one of those is a good, is a good option. I think you ought to have a third option, and that is get your fuel in a different way, buy it in a different way, use it in a different way uh, from, different, from a different source. And I am absolutely convinced that uh, not that we are going to meet this 50% goal uh, by 2020 
because of the ingenuity of American science, because of the partnership we have with the Department of Agriculture, with American farmers um, in, in biofuel, because of the partnership we have with private industry and things like solar and wind. Uh, and it, it all goes to one thing. Uh, what the Navy and Marine Corps give America is presence. We are there all the time. We're not just in the right place at the right time. We're in the right place all the time, and we have to be. We're the only global Navy in the world. We were there when the Philippines had their humanitarian assistance. Marines were there um, less than 24 hours later because we were already there when Syria erupted. Our ships were already in the Eastern Met uh, because we were there. Uh, and what we have to have from fuel is the ability to give that presence. And if, you, if the price is that volatile, and sometimes if the supply is that volatile, we begin to lose our ability to do that. Well, some advocates of American energy independence would say we can have that supply from North Dakota and Texas and not buy from Saudi Arabia and other unfriendly nations. But if I understood you correctly, that doesn't, that's supply independence but not price independence because the price is still set by the global market. Yeah, so. it, exactly. Supply independence is one thing. Price independence is something else entirely. I think you can get much closer to price independence with things like solar or wind or biofuels than you can with a, a completely global commodity. And all traders talk about it in terms of a security premium. Uh, when Libya went up, again, not a big producer. A producer, but not a big producer. Price of oil spiked. Every time somebody, some extremist group, threatens to close the Straits for moves, just threatens, there goes the price of oil. And we have got to tamp down that, that price volatility and because it's a real military vulnerability for us. I just want to clarify what you said earlier, that now or in the near future, the biofuels the Navy's purchasing are cheaper than petroleum. Well, they are, I think they will be uh, very competitive with petroleum. What I said was that we've got, a, we've got contracts with four companies uh, for less than $4 a gallon, starting in 2016 for 100 and, uh, 170 million gallons a year. I don't know what petroleum is going to be. At that point, right. okay, Fair but uh, but right now, um, it's it's exactly in the same range as petroleum. The defense budget is set to uh, decline due to the sequester and some recent laws passed. So, how is the the budget environment for the Pentagon affecting these efforts to bring in new clean technologies? Some of which cost a little more. Well, <clears throat> I think it makes it even more imperative that we do this. I mean, because the budget is shrinking, and I, and I think the American people have a right to, to insist that the, our military budget shrinks. We're coming out of two wars. Um, we ought to spend less on defense. We ought to do it smartly. But and it's doubled it, since 9-11 already. So. But, I mean, I'm going to put in a Navy plug here. <laughs> on, on 9-11, 2001, the U.S. Navy had 316 ships. By 2008, after one of the great military buildups in American history, we were down to 278 ships. Uh, we had 49,000 fewer sailors in that time. In the four years before I became secretary, the U.S. Navy put 19 ships under contract. In the first four years I was secretary, we put 60 ships under contract with a smaller top line. And I've got to power those ships. Uh, their quantity becomes a quality all its own. And if we're going to be a global Navy, we have to have those big gray hulls out on the horizon. And if we don't do it in this time of shrinking budgets and we continue to have these price spikes, that's going to impact the ability to build these ships. That's going to impact the ability to build aircraft. That's going to impact the ability to train. That's going to impact the ability to be forward deployed, to be where we, where we need to be. Now is exactly the time that we, that we have to do this. Uh, a... a Tightening budget situation makes it even more urgent, even more critical that we do this. 
Well, let's talk about those price spikes because we've uh, agricultural commodities can also be volatile. We've seen in corn that the price of corn has gone up as there's been mandates to put corn into fuels. So where is the guarantee that if you start making out of camelina or jatropha or daisies, whatever it is, that the prices won't spike for those feedstocks? Well, <clears throat> number one is competition. I think competition is a pretty good thing uh, and that you ought to have competition between different fuel prices uh, and between different fuel types. Number two, we don't have many rules in terms of what we will buy, for example, in biofuels, but we do have some. Number one, it can't take land out of food production. Um, <clears throat> number, number two, it has to be a drop-in fuel so that we don't have to change our engines in any way. We just put the fuel in. Um, and number three, as I said, biofuels is only one part of this big effort. So as you're seeing, the price of solar come down now uh, all in, in the United States and becoming much more stable. You're seeing the price of wind uh, come down uh, in, in the U.S. And as these new technologies and as we bring this market for them, and I'm pretty technology um, I don't have a favorite technology. Agnostic, yeah. Yeah. Um, the, There's lots the, of people the, here in Silicon Valley the, that'd like to show you on some of those. The, the, four, the four companies we have contracts with in the biofuel industry all use a different feedstock, every single one of them, and, and they're wildly different. Uh, and as long as it produces the fuel, and I think that's one of the ways that you begin to t- tamp down the, that volatility because unlike... If you just single out corn, um, then, yes, you may have, I mean, I know I'm from Mississippi, all sorts of people started planting corn when, uh, when, when it became mandated for fuel. But it's got to be economic on its own terms for, uh, for farmers. And Tom Vilsack, the Secretary of Agriculture, who I understand was, spoke here in the not-too-distant past, um, we, he announced... Um, a, a thing called farm to fleet, which is going to help move those agricultural products to biorefineries to the fleet. We bring the market, he brings um, agriculture, and the American farmer bring, bring the product. And I think, that is a, I think that's a way you tamp down these, the volatility, and I also think it's a way you produce American jobs, uh, and you, you help... Um, you help the economy because if you look toward the future, I mean, a clean energy economy, I think, is the future. And if we can help speed it up, and the military has done that in instance after instance after instance. I mean, look at GPS, look at the Internet, look at flat screen TVs. Um, the military was the first, first to do that in every single case because it helped us militarily, and this will help us militarily. And hasn't the Navy also encountered resistance every fuel change it's made in its history? And one of the things I do, we, I get asked a lot, why is the Navy doing this? Why is the Department of Energy doing this? And we're working very closely with the Department of Energy, but it's one of our core competencies, changing energy. When we went from sail to coal in the middle of the... 1800s. We changed from coal to oil early in the 20th century. We pioneered nuclear as a form of transportation in the mid-50s. Every single time there were naysayers. Every single time people said, this is not going to work. I mean, it's more more expensive. Uh, I mean, the wind is free. What do you mean you're going to buy by coal, and then you had a whole thing of uh, coaling stations set up around the world. We changed; we went to oil, and then you can never make nuclear small enough or safe enough to do this. And you know, if cost was the only thing, we'd all still be using typewriters. Computers are still more expensive than typewriters. Uh, <clears throat> rotary phones are still cheaper than than smartphones. Uh, Nuclear-powered aircraft carriers or submarines are still more expensive than conventionally powered. It gives us an edge, though. It gives us an edge, and it's an edge I don't think we can afford to lose. 
And so that's been, that's been right in our wheelhouse throughout virtually the whole history of the Navy. And people that join the Navy, people that join the Marine Corps, um, have, have this willingness to change, a willingness to want to see what's over the horizon, willingness they want to go. Um, and it, it's really true, join the Navy or the Marine Corps and see the world. And that is a part of this spirit of innovation, the spirit of change. And that's one of the reasons the Navy's been at the forefront every single time we've had that sort of change. Well, what are other navies around the world? Is China taking all Greece out of its walks and putting them in their <laughs> aircraft carriers? I mean, uh, where, where are other countries on this conversion to non-fossil fuels? Uh, well, number one, they're all watching us very, very closely to see if we can do it. Um, number two, places, we have some good partners around the world. Uh, China, uh, China. Um, Australia is a very good partner. Um, as I said, we're, we're sharing information with them, um, and, and they are pretty far down the line. Italy is pretty far down the line in terms of some of these alternative fuels. Um, China, not necessarily militarily, but is pouring money into, into alternative energy. And interestingly enough, the country that you mentioned at first, where I was ambassador to, Saudi Arabia, is one of the largest spenders on alternative energy in the world. That ought to tell you something. Um, I mean, number one, the Saudis have figured out that it's, they make more money if they sell their oil than if they use it internally. But number two, they are cognizant that it's some, someday they're going to need something else. So they're putting money into nuclear, they're putting money into solar, they're putting money into other things uh, besides just, just fossil fuels. Some people believe that the fracking boom in the United States and other countries will actually challenge Saudi Arabia's dominance and challenge OPEC in the oil markets. Is that, is that true? Well, whether it does or not, again, you go back to the fundamental truth that oil is a global commodity and that regardless of where it's produced, um, a lot of times it's traded on rumor and speculation. And that's what we're trying to to tamp down. I mean, I would like to have a, a completely U.S. Um, source, sources of energy. And, you know, very frankly, the military can get, even today or 10 years ago, we, if we need the fossil fuels, we will get it. We're, we're first in line. But it's these, it's these wild price swings that, uh, that's hurting us. And the Secretary of the Navy not only has the Navy, but we've got the Marine Corps. And we're talking about saving Marine lives doing this. Uh, in Afghanistan, the height of the fighting, for every 50 convoys that came into Afghanistan, we lost a Marine, killed or wounded. Uh, now, most of those convoys were carrying one of two things, fuel or water. And that is too high a price to pay. You know, we've changed things. Um, Former Secretary of State George Schultz came to an event I was at um, in 2013, and he brought with him a solar blanket that we had issued to Marines. Uh, George Schultz is a Marine, um, 42 to 45 in the artillery, and he had this solar blanket. We gave it to Marines uh, in Sangin, in the middle of some of the heaviest fighting there, it saved an average marine company 700 pounds of batteries. You could plug your, your GPS into it, plug your radio into it, roll it up, stick it in your pack. The technology has moved past that now to where it's lighter, it's smaller. But if you can produce energy where you use it as a marine, uh, you're going to save some lives. Uh, you're going to be a more effective fighting force. You know, we have SEAL teams that uh, we deploy that are getting pretty close to net zero in terms of energy production and water production. So they never have to be resupplied, uh, which is a huge military advantage. And when you turn off a generator, a SEAL told me this. He, he said, yeah, he said one of the other advantages is we, we used to have these big old generators. And said, it was like painting a bullseye on us. Go to the noise. And the heat. 
And so turn it off, and all of a sudden, you can hear when somebody's sneaking up on you. All of a sudden, you're not, you're not this big target. So there are all sorts of military reasons to do this. And that, as I said, is the reason we're doing it. There are some great side effects, lowering carbon, um, lowering our carbon footprint, climate change, things like that, that I'm very proud that we are trying to be a good steward of the environment. But the main reason we're doing it is because of our main job, and that is to be a great military force to protect this country. If you're just joining us, our guest today at, at the Commonwealth Club is U.S. Secretary of the Navy, Ray Mavis. I'm Greg Dalton. Let's talk about impacts on the Navy and the country from climate change. Uh, Norfolk is uh, one of the largest Navy bases in the world, uh, and it is also is located in a town that has uh, had some issues with, with climate change. You have bases. How are is shipbuilding and the Navy bases affected by storm surge and sea level rise, and what are you doing about that? <coughs> Obviously, the Navy is big in coastal areas, <laughs> and <laughs> so we are very aware of sea level rise. But for, for, for the reasons that you mentioned, but it's not only that. As a, a, a large majority of the people on Earth live within a very short distance of the shore, and as sea levels rise it can trigger instability uh, around the world. Um, And when that happens, the first responders, the the force that is called upon, whether it's for humanitarian assistance, disaster relief, or whether it's in case of some, some sort of crisis, is the U.S. Navy, U.S. Marine Corps. So our responsibilities get bigger. Our area of operation get bigger. Our, our job becomes more complex. You're seeing what's happening in the Arctic. Uh, suddenly, uh, the Arctic is becoming ice-free, at least along some of the channels, um, during the summer. Uh, it's causing competition for resources there. It's causing competition among countries there. It's causing more ships to go through there. Sometimes those ships aren't prepared, so you're going to have more... Um, more risk, more risk of spill, more risk of, of um, sinking, more risk of having to do search and rescue. So our responsibilities, our jobs become bigger because of, of, of sea level rise, because of some of these things. And, you know, I was in Kiribati um, <clears throat> um, in the South Pacific because we do a thing called Pacific Partnership with them uh, and with a lot of the islands there. Uh, president of that country is afraid his country is going to disappear. I was going to ask you if you've met President Nasheed from the Maldives, who was on the David Letterman show in 2012. And I recommend going back to look at this. He says, you may think, oh, Maldives, never heard of it. What happens in the Maldives can happen here in Manhattan. This was six months before Hurricane, uh, before Superstorm Sandy brought the Atlantic Ocean into the New York subway. So what he predicted exactly happened. So I just wonder if you've met him or the people that are going to be, lose their countries in the Pacific. Well, as I said, um, one of the things that I try to do when I'm traveling, particularly to the Pacific, is go to places that we do Pacific Partnership. And Pacific Partnership is we send a ship in sometimes in partnership with other countries, usually in partnership with uh, non-governmental organizations. We do medical, we do dental, we do veterinary. But we also train the local military, we train the Navy, we train the Coast Guard, our Marines train uh, ground forces. And so I have visited a number of these, of these countries, and the concern there is palpable. I mean, Kiribati is an average of about, I think, two meters above um, or less above, the, above sea level. And they don't have to have much change to just disappear. And one of the, the initiatives he's pushing is getting people to move, getting people to leave his country. Well, that's pretty serious. And, um, again, I'll go back to I'm a native of Mississippi. I lived through Katrina. And some of these superstorms that are beginning to hit, my, my daughter Annie um, goes to NYU 
and had to be evacuated during during Sandy. So um, it, this can happen anywhere, and it's and it's personal. Uh, it's not happening to the Maldives. It's not happening to Kiribati. It's it's happening here, and um, and it's something that we we disregard at our peril. The New York Times recently ran a story about uh, Secretary of State John Kerry making a push for uh, toward the, a global climate deal in 2015. There's a big summit planned in Paris. Uh, Senator McCain was quoted as saying, nothing's going to happen in the U.S. Senate in the foreseeable future. Senator McCain used to be a champion of climate action. Uh, what do you see as the prospects for a global deal on, on climate in 2015? You know, a large part of my career has been in politics. And um, when I ran my first race, the, um, the, the, the one piece of advice that I got that stuck with me is don't answer speculative questions. And I, I don't know. Um, <laughs> and, and I'm not sure anybody does. I'm not trying to be flip here. Um, what um, I, I think that... Um, People know that climate change is real. People know that it's accelerating, that, uh, that there are real consequences of it. But what I'm trying to do in the job that I have with the Navy, with the Marine Corps, is take the purchasing power that we have, take the market that we bring, and help move us and, by extension, the country uh, into a cleaner energy future, into a lower carbon energy future. And by doing that, I hope you can begin to address some of the, the issues that you just talked about. You mentioned the Arctic earlier. Uh, let's go back to that. I mean, why should we care about an ice-free Arctic? What does that mean for us? It means for some things it's like we can get goods from Europe faster through the Northwest Passage. But what is the concern about an ice-free Arctic? Well, for one thing, sea level rise, because that ice doesn't go away, it becomes water, and you're, you're, you're looking at, at sea level rise. For a second thing, uh, <clears throat> the, the countries that border the Arctic, and there are five of them, and some countries that don't, uh, China just announced a, uh, a deal with, with Iceland, um, and are very interested in it because it's, it's evidently, or people think, and uh, probably with good reason that there are a, lo- a trove of minerals there that have been unreachable. So you've got uh, you've you've got that exploration for that and and all the all the good things, but also all the bad things that happen with that uh, possibility of oil spills, the possibility of wrecks, the possibility of of of, of, a, of an ecological disaster uh, that goes on there. When you begin to have merchant ships, as you said, coming through the, the fabled Northwest Passage now. Um, <clears throat> again, uh, you know, Russia has said that that passage that's open now is theirs, um, that it is not an international transit zone. It is, a, it is an internal passage for Russia. Um, and so you, 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 up the, you up the potential for friction. You up the potential for a dispute over minerals or over borders or... Who has what? Uh, we're the only country that um, that hadn't um, uh, signed the Law of the Sea Treaty. So our claims to the Arctic, and we are an Arctic nation, um, are rest on much less firm legal grounds than the other Arctic countries. So you know <clears throat> we ought to care about. Um, about whether the Arctic is becoming ice-free. We ought to care about the temperature rise that's causing that to happen. We ought to care about the consequences that uh, will inevitably flow, whether it's instability, whether it's more friction, whether it's natural disasters that, uh, that could happen. But uh, as, as Secretary of the Navy, i got to be concerned about it because it again, increases our area of responsibility. It increases what we have to do and what we have to train to do. 
for icebreakers. Well, you know, you don't need icebreakers, I suppose. <laughs> um, but if the Navy doesn't have to protect supply routes of oil from the Middle East, doesn't that free resources to do other things? Well, <clears throat> you know, we are protecting all <clears throat> lines in the Middle East, even though we get very little of that oil. Um, you can make a pretty good argument that one of the main reasons Asia is rising is the United States Navy. Protecting the oil supply. Protecting that, but also protecting sea lanes around the world. Mm-hmm. Protecting the Straits of Malacca, through which almost you know, more than half the world's goods and oil flows this, through this one little strait there with Singapore, Malaysia, and Indonesia. Uh, we have been, and for the first time in history, uh, as a dominant naval power, We've kept the sea lanes open for everybody, for everybody engaged in peaceful commerce. Um, Most of the time, if a country became dominant, they protected it for their ships. Uh, We have opened it for everybody. And you can argue that the rise in the economies of Asia, um, because 95% of all goods in the world flow across the ocean, 95% of all telecommunications goes under the ocean. And so even if you live in a landlocked country, the stuff you get is, has come somewhere by sea. And the fact that the U.S. Navy uh, has kept those sea lanes and those choke points open for everybody is, has been a very powerful driving force in the world economy. Uh, not just for our economy, but for the world's economy. And you... <clears throat> We don't pick and choose what we, what we protect right now. Um, we protect the world. And in doing so, I think we protect the United States and our citizens and our economy pretty well. You're just joining us. Our guest today at the Commonwealth Club is U.S. Secretary of the Navy, Ray Mavis. I'm Greg Dalton. Let's talk about technology. You talked about the military and the Navy as a market for technology, but also creating technology. So what cool technologies are you working on in the Navy uh, one, one person earlier uh, talked about using uh, grease from the fried chicken on ships to power the engines. I mean, what kind of things? Or harvesting en- energy from the oceans. What things excite uh, oh, you? We're, we're, we're working on so many cool technologies, um, some of which I can tell you about. <clears throat> but one of the things that the Navy got a patent on that was announced and didn't, didn't get much, much play is that one of our very smart or several of our very smart scientists from the Office of Naval Research came up with a way to uh, create fuel by combining organic matter and seawater. Uh, and so, uh, for example, an unmanned vehicle using this technology can go to the bottom, it starts running low on fuel, goes to the bottom of the ocean, which is pretty rich in organic material, scoops up some, there's seawater all around, mixes it together and... and <clears throat> Uh, and suddenly it's got fuel again. And so that unmanned vehicle can stay out uh, perhaps indefinitely uh, or certainly for a long, long period of time doing, doing the nation's business. Um, the, um, the marine solar, uh, solar blankets that I talked mm-hmm. about, there's technology now that instead of having a you know, three-foot by three-foot fairly thick blanket that you roll up that's, a, that's really a solar panel uh, that will produce the same amount of power on a um, uh, thing the size of a sheet of paper, and it's transparent, and you can roll it up. Um, they grow it one molecule at a time. Hmm. Uh, that's, that's a technology. Private sector is, is inventing all sorts of, of things like this. Um, yeah, and, and the Navy is is doing some of the same things. But um, whether it's new types of fuel cells, whether it's um, new ways of doing this, whether it's um, <clears throat> the, these sorts of energy things, uh, you know, again, we have been on the cutting edge of technological innovation uh, in the country. And, I mean... You know, I'll go back to 
the reason flat screen TVs were invented were that we needed a way um, for the military to have to have this very clear visual without taking up a whole lot of room. Well, that's spread pretty far. Uh, and these sorts of things uh, can start in the military for purely military applications and move very quickly uh, into into the civilian world and 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 profoundly change as the internet has um, profoundly change the way we do business, the way we we act, the way we react as a society. But sometimes when government creates new technologies or makes bets that turn out badly, Solyndra, et cetera, taxpayers get upset and it gets very political. So is it, you know, is there, is it the right place for government to be taking technology risk and doing those kinds of things? Or is it better done in the private sector and you're a buyer? Well, I think you do it as a partnership. I think that um, uh, you, <clears throat> I mean, we have great partners in, in the private sector, uh, in universities. We, we do a lot of research. Uh, our, a lot of research is done on our behalf through universities. Private, private industry does, does far more research than, than we do. Um, and I would argue that we're not making a bet. We're not picking winners and losers. What we're doing is trying to change an economy. What we're doing is trying to change the way we get fuel. We don't have one way to do that. We don't have a technology that we say, there, you're it. Um, I mean, one of the problems government has had um, is just your point. I mean, I showed up as ambassador to Saudi Arabia in 1994. Sitting on my desk was a state-of-the-art Wang computer. Um, now, Wang had been out of business in 1994 for about six years. And because the government would buy hardware, but it takes a long time to buy stuff in the government. It takes forever to buy stuff in the government. And so by the time that shiny new hardware would, would get there, you know, technology had way passed it by. And nobody in the private sector would do stuff like that. And so we've got to be sort of, in your phrase, technology agnostic. All we want are the results. All we want is to be able to do things and not lock ourselves in to one specific way. Uh, and, and that goes back to my competition argument. Um, you know, I think competition is good, no matter what, no matter what it is. Um, in our shipbuilding programs, one of the ways we've managed to build so many more ships is we've made people compete. And... It's sort of like magic. The prices come down you know, pretty fast. So you compete even with the uh, Army and Air Force? That's okay? I think that's a great competition. Um, in fact, um, I'm, I, and I'm, I'm being very serious, I think that the competition on things like energy with Army and Air Force is a good competition. Um, and I think the results are going to be pretty much the same as Army-Navy football, which... Uh, Navy has now won for 12 years in a row. <laughs> you heard it here. Uh, our guest today is U.S. Secretary of the Navy, Ray Mabus. How do you manage your personal carbon footprint? Well, I moved from a big old rambling house in Mississippi to a little bitty townhouse in Washington, D.C., because that was all I could afford. Uh, is one way that, uh, that I do it. Um, I'm... Uh, you know, I ride around in one of those big black SUVs that, uh, that the government mandates uh, for people in my position with my security detail, but it's a, uh, it's a hybrid vehicle. Um, we, we do that. We, we do flex fuel stuff. Um, and, you know, I, the Navy aircraft I fly on is, you know, a lot of times powered by by biofuel. Um, now, I have, I've been unable. I have three daughters, um, 23, 21, and 12. Um, I've been unable to get them to get off their cell phones or, um, <clears throat> or not want to go as much or anything like that. But um, I do think there is a, uh, a goodness to uh, not only thinking globally but also acting locally. 
Our guest today at Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is U.S. Secretary of the Navy, Ray Mabus. I'm Greg Dalton. Let's have our first audience question. Welcome. Secretary Mabus, I am Peter Gisela, Vietnam Air veteran, who Twittered you my question this morning. I hope you have an answer now or in the near future. President Obama on July 15, 2013, signed the memorandum for the heads of executive departments and agencies on the subject, expanding national service through partnerships to advance government priorities. It created a task force listing DOD at the top of the list. It requested DOD feedback within 180 days regarding its outlined missions. My question is, can you name the DOD representative who is on this task force? If not, provide me contact info in the near future. I can do number two. And the contact information is sitting um, in the front row here. Let's have our audience question for Secretary Mavis. Good evening, Secretary. You mentioned that you thought or you, you felt like people acknowledged that global warming is a real thing. That's we're at that point. But it seems that one of our major political parties refuses to agree with that sentiment. And I'm just wondering, since they have a major say over the defense spending and the budget, how much pushback have you gotten as far as the purchasing of biodiesel and moving in this direction? We've... Um, <clears throat> We've gotten some fairly significant pushback. Um, I have been sort of uh, honored by the pushback. Um, it, it, what it says to me is what we're doing is working. That um, they wouldn't be paying much attention to Navy if what we were doing was just out there flailing around. Um, but having said that, um, <clears throat> An amendment in 2012, in May of 2012, an amendment uh, was passed through the Senate Armed Services Committee to basically shut down our biofuel program. And it was passed because a couple of folks that were on on, the, on our side weren't there. They, uh, they, they got called away. Um, when it came time on the floor, the first amendment that was allowed was an amendment to strip this out. Uh, to remove this prohibition, to allow Navy to go forward with the biofuels. We got 62 votes for that, including 12 Republicans. Uh, this is not a partisan issue. This is, um, um, <clears throat> I mean, I have one of the last nonpartisan jobs in Washington. And, you know, it, the, the people who voted f- to allow us to continue um, did so because, number one, they knew it was working. Number two, it, it was good for our economy. Number three, it helped things like farm states and, and farmers. Um, but overall, they also knew it helped our national defense. And um, I think that that is one of the most powerful arguments that you can make. And uh, the only argument that was left was cost, and now we've I think, taking it off the table. Let's have our next question for Secretary yes. Mavis. Uh, Mr. Secretary, uh, you have been so active during your tenure here. How long, um, how much longer will you remain uh, Secretary of the Navy? And also congratulations on bringing uh, Admiral Denham again into the Department of Navy. But I would like to know how long you're going to be around. <laughs> I wish for a long time. <laughs> Do you know something I don't know? <laughs> no, 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 sir. It's just uh, four or five years. It usually runs the, unless Secretary Schultz, he stays longer, of course. <laughs> I, um, I love this job. It, it is, I, I think I've had the two best jobs in American government, the best elective job as governor and the best appointed job in this. And um, I work at the pleasure of the president, but um, as as long as he'll let me stay, I'm, uh, I'm very happy, uh, very happy doing that. Let's have our next question for the U.S. Secretary of the Navy, Ray Mavis. Uh, good evening, Mr. Secretary. Um, I'm an enlisted member, actually, of the Navy, and I've, uh, I see all these educated people here. However, I feel that there is a bit of a disconnect between these environmental you know, friendly policies and some of the enlisted members of the Navy. And I was wondering if you had any educational or outreach programs for enlisted members, people who may or may not be college-educated or may just have a very specific one-world view of a topic of this nature? 
number one, yes, there are a lot of some of the, uh, these outreach programs and, and the training that we're now including uh, has, has some bearing on energy. But let me give you one specific example. Some of our best ideas come from the petty officer third class that's in the engine room. Uh, the USS Macon Island, uh, Navy's first hybrid ship. It, um, it's a big deck amphibious ship, a big ship. Uh, it has uh, an electric drive for speeds under 12 knots and a normal diesel for speeds over 12 knots. Turns out warships go under 12 knots a lot. And on its last deployment, uh, which was uh, about a seven-month deployment, uh, to Central Command, to the Middle East. It, we had a $35 million budget, fuel budget, for that ship. Uh, they saved $17 million of it. Uh, and part of it was the hybrid drive. But I went and visited Macon Island, and the engineering officer said, he said, yeah, part of it is this hybrid drive, and I'm proud of that. He said, but the thing I'm prouder of are the sailors on this ship now know that this makes them better warfighters. And so, you know, a second-class petty officer will come up and say, you know, I have figured out a way that I can save energy on this. I have figured out a way I can save energy on that. At the rim of the Pacific for the Great Green Fleet, I went over to the cruiser Princeton. They've got two helo hangers near the stern. One of them has LED lighting. The other one doesn't. The, the crew now will not repair a helo in the one that doesn't have LED lighting because it can't see as well. Uh, and the only way you can change those light bulbs because the overhead is 30 feet above the deck is put some scaffolding up. You only have to change LEDs about every seven years. You have to change the incandescent stuff you know, about every, every six months. So... The enlisted sailors who were having to climb up on those scaffolds and do it, uh, or who are having to repair helicopters in less than ideal conditions. I mean, it's hard enough repairing a helo on a pitching ship <clears throat> at sea. Uh, add that you don't have the lighting in good enough. And they have figured out if you change all the light bulbs, put LEDs in, you save 1% or 2% of the total fuel bill of that ship. That's pretty powerful. And that's where some of our best ideas are coming from, is from the ranks, from, from the, you know, the third class, second class, first class petty officers, the chiefs that, that are doing it every day and seeing the results every day. And I hope that, uh, I mean, I think that's the way you make real change, is from the ground up and not from... You know, somebody like me saying we ought to, we ought to be green. Let's have our next question for Secretary Mabus. Yeah, Secretary Mabus, I'm re- very happy to hear that uh, the Navy is like replacing all the petroleum-based fuels with uh, biofuels, and I think uh, you're the uh, um, global largest user of biodiesel. Um, what I'd like to ask, uh, however, is like what's happening with the hardware, and especially because you grew up uh, in a hardware store in Mississippi. Um, are there uh, any examples of uh, changing the hard- hardware, like the vessels, the equipment, uh, buildings where the fuel uh, is being re- uh, replaced? Sort of, where, where are there examples of reducing? Uh, the waste of energy or energy efficiency. I'm curious about those. And and that is my fault. I should have mentioned that because energy efficiency is one of the main ways. We're, we're going to use less energy and we're going to use a different kind when we do it. But using less, um, and we're doing all sorts of things. Um, hull coatings uh, cut, the, uh, cut the fuel usage on a ship by a couple of percentage points putting stern flaps behind the, um, behind the screws cuts fuel consumption. Voyage planning cuts fuel consumption. I mean, it goes back to the age of sail. Know where the currents are. Know where the wind is. Uh, instead of just telling a captain, you know, in San Diego, go to Japan, go this way. 
uh, follow these currents, you you will save save that. We've been working with large shipping companies uh, like Maersk uh, that now pay their captains partly on how much fuel they use, uh, and they can do it by regardless of what size the ship is, regardless of what kind of cargo it's carrying. And we're trying to learn some lessons from that. On shore, we're building a lot more energy-efficient buildings. The uh, Deputy Undersecretary of the Navy came from the Green Building Council. Um, And so we're putting some of those things into into use. We are... uh, We've got smart grids almost everywhere now on our bases. So we know where we're using our energy. When I first started this, and you can... Sort of tell if your if 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 your message is getting through by the kind of briefings you get, because when I was first secretary and I'd go out to bases or ships, I'd get briefed on everything. Now, first thing they talk about is energy. Now I know they're doing it because of me, but one of the base commanders said showed me. He said, "When I knew you were coming, I got a copy of my electric bill," and he's and he showed it to me. was something called line loss. He said, I don't know where that electricity went. I don't know which building used it. I don't know where I can save. And so we put, you know, he said, I'm I'm going to put smart meters. That's how how the Navy used our stimulus money, um, was was to put smart meters in a lot of places. So now we know what buildings are energy hogs. Now we know what we can do. Now we know where the peaks are, things like that. We're... We're looking into things like um, microgrids so that we can get off the grid or we can use the grid as a backup, um, not only to save energy, but also if something, God forbid, happens to the grid, we need to still be able to do our military responsibilities. We need to have that, that power so that, we can, uh, so that we can operate. So we're doing stuff like that. We're buying different vehicles. I mean, the Navy has a 50,000 non-combat vehicle fleet. Um, Just by changing what we're buying, buying more flex fuel, buying more hybrid, buying more electric vehicles, uh, we're we're reducing the amount of fuel that we use. I could prattle on all night about about these sorts of things, but we really are, I think, uh, being far, far more energy efficient. And there's a ways to go. There's still a lot of stuff that we can do. But, uh, but I think we're, we're on that road, and I think we're, we're making a good bit of progress on it. We have time for a couple of questions. Yes, sir. Hi. Uh, thanks for coming to speak with us today. Uh, what other options did the Navy explore for reaching its 50% by 2020 goal? In, in what way? Um, you mentioned that you were partnering, partnering with four companies um, to buy fuel at a, a preset rate. I was wondering if there were other options that the military explored to reach the same goal of getting 50% biofuel or 50% alternative fuels. As, as I said, we're, we're open to any, any idea of how to get there, um, whether it's um, – and, and we are technology agnostic as to, as to how we get there, as long as it's, it's a renewable fuel, as I said – we don't have many requirements. Um, it's, um, you know, don't take food out of, uh, don't take any land out of food production. Any fuel has got to be a drop-in fuel. But um, outside of biofuels, I mean, we, we're dealing with solar. We're dealing with wind, hydrothermal, geothermal, wave. Um, and we're also looking at different ways of financing uh, these sorts of things. That so that uh, the private sector can uh, put up a building or a power plant of some sort, solar, wind, something like that, we'll do an offtake uh, so that it's profitable for them. Uh, the, the best example of, of how that's been done in the past is most of our military housing now is uh, PPV housing, public-private venture housing, where uh, we guarantee a lease for a certain amount of time private sector builds the houses, they maintain the houses, they upgrade the houses, and uh, it's much cheaper for us, and the private sector makes, uh, makes a very fair profit. So I think that there are ways that we can do this. 
Yes, sir. Welcome to Climate One. The club has really enjoyed your talk today, Secretary. A uh, couple of questions coming from San Francisco. I'm a San Francisco Bay. We're short on time, so sailor. you can pick one. Okay. Very good. Only one question. Uh, as a long-distance cruising sailor, we often attach wind generators to our boats. And is there any interest in the Navy in doing that? Thank you. As I said, we are looking at various technologies um, to see, number one, what works. Number two, making sure it doesn't interfere with our military mission. Um, that Because um, uh, when you start hanging stuff off of... Uh, off of ships that fire stuff, it uh, sometimes uh, sometimes you've got a got an issue there. But if if something will work, um, you know, it's like those uh, beer ads. It's only weird if it doesn't work. Um, <laughs> you know, if if, if, if something will work, we're gonna we're gonna give it a a, a very hard look. And, and it's got to work at scale. It's got to work across across the fleet. It's got to work across our bases. The last thing I'll say is. We are a seagoing service. We have almost 300 ships now in the Navy. We're growing back to 300 by the end of this decade. Um, but we also have 3.3 million acres of land. We have 72,500 buildings. Uh, we're one of the largest um, landowners and building owners in the country. So we can make a difference both ways, both at sea uh, which gets most of the press and most of the attention, uh, but also the the stuff on energy efficiency and changing the way we power our bases uh, will have a will have a massive effect as well. And in fact, the president in the State of the Union two years ago announced that Navy was going to buy a gigawatt of renewable energy for our bases uh, by 2020, and that's part of the initiative for 2020. Solar-powered bowling alleys on the basis of everything <laughs> else. Uh, let's have it. Yeah, we have time for yes. Thanks, Secretary Mavis. Thank you for being here. Um, wanted to underscore and thank you for your efforts to increase energy efficiency and also microgrid. Um, those are two areas that can be leveraged incredibly well across the private sector and very profitably. So more than biofuels, I would say investments in those can really benefit, culturally can benefit the world. My question is, in 2009, I tweet these. So I need to update people. Um, you set out five really bold promises. Where do I get updates on those? Um, well, <clears throat> number one, I, I tweet. Um, you have a Facebook page, right? <laughs> I've got a Facebook page. Um, I can, uh, but I can give you some dedicated um, links uh, through you know, my public affairs officers here. And... Uh, um, I'll make sure that uh, that she gives you those, where where those updates are posted. But um, you can get um, a lot of stuff we're doing um, through the Facebook page because there is a focus on energy there. We're also on a thing called um, uh, GreenBiz.gov uh, that all the things we're doing in energy that businesses for private business that are out for contract uh, goes through one portal, um, uh, Green Biz. And uh, that is also, that's a place to look as to where we're going and what we're looking for. Real fast, last question. Yes, welcome. Sir, my name is Trevor Nguyen, a reserve ensign in the Supply Corps. Uh, What advice would you give to our sailors on what we can personally do to keep the Navy green and sustainable? Perfect closing question. Perfect closing question. Well, I've talked a lot about what sailors have been doing, and um, I've also talked about the type of people who join the U.S. Navy and U.S. Marine Corps and the spirit of adventure and the spirit of innovation and willingness to change. We've been doing that for 238 years. Keep doing it. Um, Keep being willing to change. Keep um, the... The conventional wisdom is almost always behind the curve, and uh, keep keep questioning it. But also, if 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 you see something that can be done, we're going to listen to you. Um, your your CEO is going to listen to you. Uh, I'm going to listen to you. The whole organization that is the Navy, the 900,000 uh, sailors, Marines, and civilians that uh, are, are in the Department of the Navy. Um, 
that's where that's where the, this future is coming from. I mean, I can come up with these goals. I can talk about various technologies. If we don't have the sailors um, that are doing it, it's and the Marines, it's not going to happen. But we do. And, uh, you know, you're in the supply corps. And there's a world of things that you guys can do. Uh, so I think that uh, I, the biggest weapon we have are sailors and Marines. Uh, we push responsibility down to ensigns. We push it down to third-class petty officers more than any military in the world. And we expect and we get great results day after day after day. We've been talking about powering America's Navy and economy with Navy Secretary Ray Mabus. I'm Greg Dalton. Thank you all for coming to Climate One today. Podcasts of this and other Climate One programs are available on the iTunes Store. Thank you for coming to the Commonwealth.